1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every
0: weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: Well, let's dig into what's going on with the virus, especially as it comes to getting back to school, back to the office, so much more. We're checking in with Dr. Megan Collins, assistant professor of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, part of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you might be able to tell by the name, it's supported by Mike Bloomberg. He's the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the parent of this radio station. And what's interesting, Dr. Collins, is you're also the co-director of the Hopkins Consortium for School-Based Health Solutions. So let's start there. I'm a parent. Carol's a parent. Many of our listeners are parents. The school question, I think, is one of the biggest ones facing us as a society right now not just when it comes to our day-to-day lives, but also the underlying economy. Where are we in this process right now?
2: Absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me on. And yes, completely agree with you. This is sort of front and center, um, impacting everybody across the country, whether you have kids or you have colleagues that have kids. This is impacting all of us. And you know it it's a very consequential decision about how and when to reopen schools. there um, there's sort of rapid and there's significant variation across the country. Most school districts across the country are now either hybrid or completely online. Uh, New York City today was the, you know our largest school district in the country actually completed its phase plan of reopening. Um, for middle and high school students. They had started for elementary school students um, last week and earlier this week. So we're all in the place of how do we do this? How do we do this safely with kids and teachers and school staff safety having
0: to be um, central to this discussion? So how do you think we do do it? Like I I have a daughter who's actually been in school almost a month now or three weeks. It's a hybrid setup. Uh, They're being really careful and knock on wood. So far, so good. Which is great. And I I think there are ways to do it. And I think,
2: you know, all other things mean equal. If we, you know, um, are able to meet the benchmarks, we want kids to be back in school. It's it's the best place for kids. And as you both intimated, you know, it's critical to the economy as well. But there are several factors that are important. One has to do with what the community um, rate of transmission is. So there are certain places that it's just too high to reopen schools safely. If the community transmission rate rate is low enough, another consideration has to be capacity for testing and contact tracing. Mm -hmm. That has been a challenge in a number of places just in terms of availability of testing and turnaround time. So if you have a child who has symptoms and you need to shut down, you know, a class or a bubble at school because of that, if you can't get testing for that kid back for greater than a week, then you'll shut down a classroom for, you know, a substantial period of time. The the other piece is really having risk mitigation uh, measures in school. And, Carol, it sounds like they're doing that at your school. Those are things like making sure people are wearing masks, Mm -hmm. putting desks certain numbers of feet apart, things like that, which are really important as well.
1: So, Dr. Collins, let me ask you one sort of specific school question, which is, what is the best thinking at this point? And I know everything is subject to change and we're learning every day. But what's the best thinking that you've seen around, OK, there's an outbreak in a school or there's just a couple cases in a school? What's the right sort of proportionate reaction? Do we know that yet in terms of sending people home, quarantining, shutting down? What, what's the sense we're getting there?
2: Well, the, there are CDC guidelines around this, and it really, you know, what schools are trying to do, and it's important, is thinking about risk mitigation strategies to prevent, if somebody is positive, to prevent them having had exposure to a large number of other students. And that means, you know, these ideas of grade cohorts and bands of students that don't necessarily interact with other students in the school um, you know, teachers being the ones to move classrooms rather than students, things like that. Mm. Um, you, you ideally want, if somebody is positive, you know, anybody who's a close contact, which is somebody who's been around them less than six feet for more than fifteen minutes, needs to quarantine. But you don't want to have to quarantine an entire school. So you wanna figure out strategies to make sure the number of people that they're exposed to during the day is as little as possible. Without totally compromising their their educational activities for the day easier to do in the younger grades than when you're talking about the middle school and high school grades where you have so much movement of kids throughout a building
1: right well, and also the idea, and I think we 're all seeing this in our lives parents are the idea that 's like especially as kids get older, you have you know slightly less visibility maybe as to okay they 're in <laughs> class they're out of class, who are they talking to in the hallways? Where are they going after? You know, like all these little elements become very tricky from a social perspective, it feels like, Dr. Collins.
2: And it's so important to bring both kids and families into this discussion. I Mm -hmm. mean, when you think about it, all of our lives have been dramatically impacted by COVID, but but students have been, their lives have been thrown into chaos from being in the school building as of March 13th to not you know not having kindergarten or grade school or high school graduations or proms I mean they've they've been impacted a lot by
0: this. So Dr. Collins what are your expectations as we move through the colder months certainly here in the northeast and elsewhere around the country and what it will mean for schools whether it's uh, you know grade schools whether it's high schools whether it's colleges whether it's universities.
2: So, great question. I think as schools are starting to reopen um, in person, which we're starting to see, you know, more of that happening as a either hybrid option or some fully opening in person, it is, we're going to see more cases. And one of the things that's absolutely essential is to try to monitor those cases that are happening from schools, from school-aged children, so we can better understand both the risk for kids as well as for the teachers and staff in the schools. We should expect that schools are gonna to need to close from time to time. And, and that is just gonna be sort of part of, as this pandemic ebbs and flows, we're gonna to have to do that when it's, it's not safe to stay open in terms of transmission to, to others in the school community.
1: So Dr. Collins, you know, we've talked about sort of the reaction when there's a positive test and you know, one of the things we have seen that seems to have been fairly effective, especially at the college and university level, is a lot of testing. How does that figure in? Because if we get more rapid testing, how much does that change the calculus of how schools operate and is it feasible to essentially apply a lot more rapid testing it's especially at the sort of elementary and high school level?
2: So I think increasing the availability of testing is certainly part of the solution. And, and honestly, this is going to vary um, by school districts in mm-hmm. terms of their um, access to resources. So we have places where you know, access to testing and access to testing with quick turnaround time is less than issue. And then we have places that's a substantial issue. And, and that sort of brings up the fact that we need schools open, particularly in our more low income areas, because of the fact that they school, students rely on schools for so many additional services in addition to education, whether it's food or safety and security or you know school based health services and with schools being closed for this prolonged period of time we, we've noticed a lot of you know negative impact on kids in all of those different areas
0: you know it's interesting, and I know you're involved. Uh, in an e-school initiative um, at Johns Hopkins. And I do wonder what you think the role of kind of e-learning will be once we get through the pandemic. Does it stick with us? Does it provide us, um, I don't know, some upside when it comes to learning going forward? Is there, I'm just curious what you think kind of stays. And should no, stay, maybe. great question, and and I actually think there is a huge upside.
2: I think that we have been forced to utilize technology in a way to connect with students and families uh, more so than we ever have previously from an education system perspective, as well as, you know, I'm an ophthalmologist, so as from a clinical care perspective, I've also employed a lot of telemedicine in the past several months. Um, that being said, it has also laid bare the there are equity issues and access and utilization of technology, and that um, while technology is important for schools, we have to recognize that there are a lot of kids who don't have the same levels of access or even access to devices at all, and those kids have been the ones who have probably suffered the most from being in a virtual learning environment where they can't meaningfully engage.
1: Right, yeah, well, and that's a a whole issue that we could spend Another hour talking to you about, we know you're working uh, specifically on that issue. You and your colleagues there, so we really appreciate it. Dr. Megan Collins, assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. And that's part of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course. And as you heard Charlie uh, reference, uh, Jason Farley at Johns Hopkins, we rely heavily uh, on our friends there at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Collins joined us on the phone from Baltimore. So does the
0: world. I mean, those statistics are yeah, just, I It's mean, become
1: the gold standard, really, when yeah. it comes to the, to the data. You're exactly right. Good point.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So
1: we're talking a lot about jobs today. Day, who's getting them, who's not, who may be losing them. And Wall Street got a little more worried this week, I think, Carol, because what was seen as a bit of a moratorium on job cuts, well, that clearly was lifted because we saw some people uh, losing their jobs uh, over the course of this week. And we're also seeing. A lot of drama, it feels like, on Wall Street right now.
0: Well, when it comes to Wall Street, we're now at like 68,000 and counting when it comes to cuts uh, in the financial sector. And as you said, Jason, yeah, this is a major theme this week. And this story specifically, there's one on Goldman Sachs about job cuts. It's our most read story on the Bloomberg all day today. So tracking the comings and goings of Wall Street for us with her nonstop and really terrific reporting is Michelle Davis. She's Bloomberg News finance reporter. She's with us on the phone in Vermont. We are convinced you never sleep because you are just on it.
1: (laughs) Scoop machine. (laughs) So what do we need to Um, know today, Michelle, is you guys especially have synthesized this. I mean, that was sort of as we were talking about, like, Get us, Michelle Davis, to just make sense of all of this, because you guys are working as a team, but what do we need to take away, especially as we're looking at jobs day tomorrow? What's the jobs picture on Wall Street right now?
3: So, you know, you mentioned it right at the top, bank layoffs are back, and it's interesting timing because if you remember when this pandemic started uh, seven months ago, a lot of these U.S. banks and banks uh, across the world said that they weren't going to conduct layoffs during the pandemic, or at least until next year. And now, seven months into this, they are finding that they may have made promises they couldn't keep. Uh, as we've confirmed with sources at Goldman, that they are cutting about 1% of their workforce. That's about 400 positions. Uh, it's our understanding that a lot of those cuts are in back office roles, that uh it seems like the bank could cut costs by uh, automating a lot of this. But, you know, it was across the bank. And uh, we also confirmed that J.P. Morgan last week notified uh, hundreds of, of employees uh, of about layoffs. Uh, you know, they're a much bigger bank. They they employ a quarter million people. So it's probably not as big when you compare it to Goldman Sachs. But it just shows that, you know, the the layoff machine is back Um the industry overall has been reducing headcount uh, over the past few years. And uh, many people were expecting a a pickup in January uh, as some of these pledges rolled off, but it seems like banks are, are doing, you know, getting back to layoffs earlier than than anticipated.
0: Right. So, Michelle, is this normal attrition? Or as someone tweeted to me, um, and I'm being a little facetious here, we're sorry we have to lay off floors two to six because if we don't, we can't pay bonuses for the top floor. I mean, is that what it's like? What is this about? Is it is it just business as usual, just picked up a little bit of momentum, or is it about something else?
3: You know, there's a lot of things going on here, and the banks themselves, have avoided saying that, you know, these are pandemic-related. J.P. Morgan, for instance, has said that its layoffs, you know, are part of a review it does every year of resources. They never pledged to stop layoffs, so it's probably unsurprising that that they're doing this, given, you know, how much attention they pay to maintaining that fortress balance sheet. But at Goldman Sachs and at some of these other banks, think Citigroup or, or Wells Fargo, uh, we know that the consumer is not as strong as it was going to be. Banks have set aside a ton of money to prepare for loan for loan losses, and so to you know make up that loss, they have to to cut people, and uh, that seems to be what's driving a lot of it. Um, and a lot of it, it just seems to be banks also taking advantage of this opportunity to use technology to eliminate some roles, especially now that you know a lot more happens virtually than maybe they were used right. to, or maybe than they thought was possible previously.
1: So, speaking of working remotely, I want to move to another story that caught our attention that you wrote, Michelle. Uh, people working remotely, you know, and it was because of the pandemic, and JP Morgan finding that more than 500 workers got virus relief funds. I, I got to tell you, this was one where I think Carol and I both read and went, wait, what? <laughs> tell us about this.
3: So. This story was a development on some news we had broke a little ground on a couple weeks ago where we reported that JP Morgan had uncovered that some of its employees had misused COVID relief funds. and it turns out that they conducted this internal investigation. They found that, as you said, more than 500 of their workers uh, got EIDL grant money that uh, was intended for small businesses you know to help them get through the pandemic a lot of these people had legitimate reasons for getting the money but uh JP Morgan you know because it was so many 500 people they did dig into it um, they conducted an initial like high priority investigation and found that of you know in the group of director level employees and, and employees getting a certain amount of money they found that fraud among among five of those these are JP Morgan workers that you know, had checking accounts also with J.P. Morgan. And then they found dozens more um, across the entire group. So I think the takeaway here is that J.P. Morgan is, you know, they're kind of like a cross-section of the uh, American population. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're finding that a lot of these programs that were rolled out really quickly, you know, to get money to to businesses and people in need, a lot of it was riddled with fraud. And it seems like, you know, may be... Broad may have been way more pervasive than than we know or than we thought um, initially.
0: And we knew that there was gonna be some of this because we were rolling this program out quickly. And I think most people agreed, listen, that's okay, because we need to get money out to folks, but it is still a little worrisome when you see (laughs) the stories, when the truth comes out. Um, One last thing we gotta ask you about, what's with this frequent flyer points as an alternative for investors? What is J.P. Morgan up to?
3: So (laughs) this is an interesting one. J.P. Morgan is working on this cool partnership with this uh, kind of Fintechy company called Affinity Capital Exchange, which runs an exchange where people can buy and sell loyalty points, like you know frequent flyer miles or like, hotel rewards points. And so what they're trying to do is basically institutionalize the loyalty point market so that like, hedge funds could trade them the same way they would trade stocks or bonds. Right now, the way this whole market works is the airline sells points directly to banks who then mm. issue them to their custom their credit card customers when they spend money. It's not very liquid. banks don't like having these like liquid liabilities on their balance sheets, but for the issuers um you know this structure where where they're issued on an exchange like this also allows them to to tap into the the value of these um programs which are super profitable there uh, for some of the banks you know or for some of the airlines people have said without the the rewards programs they would be bankrupt and so it it gives them an easier way yeah. to, to tap into the, the the value of those and and instead of pledging the yeah. entire thing as collateral as we've seen in some of the emergency financings uh, over the past few months you know with Delta right. and United they could just pledge a, a small slice um of the of their program and
0: then of yeah. course there'll be the frequent flyer points crisis at some yeah, point <laughs>
1: of course of course yeah the next financial crisis brought to you by frequent flyer mouths all right michelle davis thank you so much the hardest working reporter at She's bloomberg amazing. finance reporter joining us on the phone
0: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio imagine going jason safely to a bar or a wedding or parent-teacher night, I did mine, a couple hours of Zoom last night, without a vaccine. Apparently it's possible, but it requires the U.S. getting its act together.
1: Yeah. Well, and that may be the toughest part about this. We're talking about rapid COVID tests. It's Mm -hmm. the cover story of this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We have one of the co-writers, Michelle Cortez. We love catching up with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, She covers all things health, medical, science for Bloomberg. She has been one of the most dogged and most influential reporters on this beat, for sure. She joins us on the phone from Minneapolis, along with Joel Weber. He is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. So, Joel... Such a great cover and cover story. Tell us about this piece and set us up to talk to Michelle.
4: So we set out to do this story because, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about vaccines and um, the the hope that they could, the hope that they can get us out of this mess, right? And give us back uh, a semblance of the life we had before the virus. And what we what we also have started to realize was, was that you know if we actually got our act together and got um, some abilities to do accurate, fast testing, there's a way to actually have a semblance of normalcy again before that vaccine, which still could be a ways off. And that was sort of what um, Michelle and her co-author Drake Bennett dove into for this week's cover story. It was sort of like. What exactly, how close to having a decent, fast test are we exactly? And, you know, what, what implications could that have? I mean, I, I want to go to restaurants yeah. and send my kid back to school and all those great things. And, like, what, you know, is there a version of reality that might look like that? And, and how do we get there, like, now? <laughs> and, Michelle, why don't you pick it up there and, and tell us how close to a version of reality like that are we?
5: So we do see that there is ways where things can happen somewhat in a semblance of normalcy, right? Any of these sports events that we're watching, we can see that they are on top of it. They know who's positive. They know how to knock it down, you know, put everybody under quarantine and whatnot and keep it under control. The question is, is how do you do that for an entire country of 330 million people? And the answer is that it is theoretically possible But it is going to take a huge amount of effort on behalf of our government, on behalf of the diagnostic test makers who are now starting to bring all these very cool new products to the market. And honestly, on behalf of Americans, people who maybe don't want to wear masks, but if you get a positive test, you've got to stay home.
0: Michelle, this is about seeing the spread of the virus, you know, in anything close to real time. This is what we're shooting for, right? I do wonder, though, with everybody so obsessed and focused on getting a vaccine, rightfully so, you know, do we have the wherewithal among regulators, the FDA, and then the companies that need to produce these things, you know, in mass quantities?
5: There is absolutely going to be a huge lift when it comes to this. The the industry that's working on it of course they this is what they do and that's what the story goes into and you know Joel and uh, and Drake Bennett what a fabulous writer he is um did a really great job in making sure that we it, it not only looked at what is happening here but what also has to happen in order for it to come to fruition i don't i personally don't think that people are going to are going to not do it like i think there's questions about whether or not people will get vaccinated but if there were tests available, I think the vast majority of Americans would take one as often as we give it to them. So the industry, I think, is going to do it. The question is, is how cheap can it be and mm-hmm. how can we make it available to everybody who needs it in order to make a difference with the amount of virus we have in the country? And that's the point.
4: And, and Michelle, let's, let us I want to dwell on sort of the technical aspects of what these rapid COVID tests look like. They're not the same thing as, you know, Putting a swab up your nose, right? Like the whole point of this is that actually there's a there's a different way that we could be testing, and that that's what allows us to do it cheaper, better, faster. What what is what are the mechanics of the, this testing look like?
5: Well, the beauty of this story actually is that it looked broadly across all the different technologies that we're talking about, and one of the things that I was most frustrated about. It, in terms of how people have been covering testing generally is that there is kind of this Pollyanna-ish approach of if we were just willing to make the effort, we could do it. And in fact, that's not the case. When it comes to what you're talking about, uh, Jason, I think you're talking about the lateral flow tests, which are like the pregnancy tests. And in fact, what we have right now, you still do need to do a nasal swab, but the thing is you could do it yourself. You know, you put it up your nose. That's what Abbott's Binex now is. You put it up your nose, you stick it into the pregnancy test, you squeeze a little bit of buffer on it, and which is a liquid, and then that just carries that little viral, you know, the, the genetics from what's inside your nose, it carries it along this little strip. And if there's antigens, essentially the virus, in that sample that you took, it carries it down that pathway towards the... Towards the um, Towards the antibodies that would normally be fighting a virus if it was in your body, but they've instead just attached it to the strip. And if those two things click together, a little flag pops up, a little nanoparticle of gold appears, and then you know you're positive.
4: And, and you s- can sit down and have dinner in the restaurant then, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, or like, not in that case. Yeah.
1: Depending on the on uh, the
0: diners around
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, Michelle, this is. Uh, not to overstate it, I mean, this is a potential game changer in many ways, not just for our daily lives, but economically. I mean, this could unlock, even if it's in limited geographies, people's ability to really get back to what feels like something very close to normal.
5: Yeah, absolutely. We were talking to folks from Harvard University, and one of the things that I found most compelling was this idea of a virus budget. And what that means is that you can, If we do the testing right, we can tell how much virus there is circulating in our communities. And if there is not a lot of virus out there, then, then really you're, you should be allowed to do things. You should be allowed to send your kids to school and, and eat in restaurants and go to the movies. And you should be able to do that without a lot of fear. But you need to have it being watched very closely so that when you start seeing an uptick in that virus spread, everybody can back off a little bit and let it calm down. Because remember, all the virus is doing is trying to jump from one person to the next person to the next. And if we don't make that possible for the virus, the virus dies out and it happens over and over again. It is going to be absolutely a roller coaster that we're going to be on for at least the next many months and perhaps years. So it's something we should really get used to. And this idea of a virus budget that we know how much is out there. When there's not a lot, we can go out. When there is a lot, we all need to just... You know, take a couple of steps back and let things calm down, and then we go and do it again.
4: Okay, Michelle. And what what companies and and uh, should we be particularly watching for the style of of tests and and how close to being able to scale the the, the mechanisms are are we?
5: Great, great question. Uh, of course, the only really large uh, publicly traded company that is working. On this, it has a product out right now is Abbott with the Binex Now. Of course, the U.S. government has bought up the entire supply of that. So we're waiting for others to come along. E25 Bio, they were actually working trying to solve this problem in developing countries for things like dengue. And then they realized, hey, in everywhere in the world is like a developing country here. Nobody has this testing infrastructure to handle this. So they pivoted. They're working on, on it now. Or sure, you probably know about them because you can go into your supermarket or a pharmacy and pick up an HIV test that you can do at home. They're trying to get that done for coronavirus. If you could just go to a store and buy one and do it yourself on your own dime, you don't have to wait for anybody else. And then there's companies who are using CRISPR technology. Mammoth Bioscience is doing that. Sherlock is doing that. And they are using that kind of very, very cutting-edge technology that looks for... The virus itself, normally CRISPR goes in there and edits the genome. What this is doing is it's making a cut that fluoresces the the test itself, and then you would know whether it's positive or not, super precise.
1: Well, this story is incredible. It's a tour de force of reporting, mm. but we've come That's to expect incredible. that from you, Michelle. So thank you. Once again, Michelle Cortez covering all things virus, all things health science, and medical tech for Bloomberg. She's got the cover story this week. Co-written with Drake Bennett, uh, another one of our faves. So it's just favorite on favorite here uh this week on Bloomberg Business Week. Our thanks to Michelle and of course to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us from Massachusetts.
4: I'm driving my
1: car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home. Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. You drive. This
3: drive, baby. It's the question us.
0: This is the drive to the close. That funky music
1: will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Happy to have with us Sam Dunlap, Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategies at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, looking after. About $10 billion. Joining us on the phone from Atlanta, home of, as I mentioned to Ed Cleggie a few minutes ago, our traffic guy, the victorious Atlanta Braves. Moving on to the next round of the playoffs. Happy to see that. Happy to see them dispatch uh, so easily of the Reds. A very good team. So, Sam, baseball notwithstanding, how you doing? Great, Jason. Thanks. Yeah, good Braves. Appreciate the... Uh Shout out to the our hometown team. I know, I feel pretty good about them right now, even though they play in the stadium with the dumbest name in America, Truest Field or whatever they're calling it, which I just don't even get me started wow. on. That. But we're uh, we're happy to calling, see them move Jason, on, right? They're a little unhappy with you right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um,
1: so, Sam, amid you know, baseball's great, sports are great. I know you're a University of Georgia guy, so go dogs on that side as well. But the economy right now, I do wonder how you're feeling about it because I feel like we're getting some mixed messages.
6: Yeah, you know, the the U.S. recovery is is really been v-shaped as, as you all know and i've uh, been highlighting throughout the day you know really off the plunge that we saw in, in q2 um you know I, I think the this v-shape is clearly um uh, you know being led by areas like housing uh which are uh, definitely pointing to to continued v-shape but uh, you know that really comes on the heels as, as we know and touched on uh, you know several times before just the unimaginable amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus you know i think as we look ahead for this type of, of pace to clearly continue where i think some concerns that begin to emerge is just uh, or the concerns for continued v-shape rather is is uh you know a slowdown perhaps in the reopening or the pace of reopening that the Broad U.S. has been following, you know, a delay in the vaccine as as well as just lack of additional stimulus, which has certainly gotten some headlines today with with Pelosi on on the show earlier. Uh, It seems to be that there is some hope, quote, but, uh, you know, all eyes on the on the uh, additional fiscal stimulus from here.
0: How do investors, you know, kind of make sense of what's going on in the economy versus what's going on in the real world between, and and what's going on, I say, economy markets, and then what's going on kind of in the real world, where we see some people certainly benefiting, uh, and there are many that are not. How do you take that into account as an investment advisor? Because there are names like a Walmart that certainly play into the lower socioeconomic part of our economy. Um, So I'm just curious.
6: Yeah, you know, we're, Where we focus on fixed income, particularly uh, in the structured credit space, we've really had our eyes on on areas like uh, housing that has clearly been a big beneficiary, to your point, in this recovery. And that's, frankly, been driven by uh, just this inordinate amount of, of fiscal and monetary stimulus, particularly the monetary side, but also just really benefiting from some of the you know overwhelming amount of demand that's been created on the heels of the virus but a lot of demand that that has been emerging really frankly, throughout the post-global financial crisis period. But that's just been further fueled by, by the effects of the virus, but also uh, the plunge that we've seen in rates here at the zero bound. And, and again, that's really a testament to the Fed and, and the initiatives to, to get the economy going. But there are some real bright spots and beneficiaries, to your point, and, and, and housing being really leading the charge there. So, Sam, let's talk a little bit more about
1: housing and, and some specific things and trends that we've been talking about a whole lot on this show. And you may have heard us talk about it, and I'm guessing you've been talking about it as well. Um, and certainly a city like Atlanta, right there in your backyard, is an interesting uh, testament to this. People moving out of the Northeast in some cases, certainly people moving out of the big city centers, a lot of demand in the suburbs. We see that sort of in data, but how does that translate into something that is ultimately? investable or something that an investor can factor in to his or her portfolio
6: Yeah, it's a great question yeah you know, as far as again where we focus on, on, the, uh, on the fixed income side, I'll certainly touch on that but to your point I, I think it's worth noting and, and really fa- frankly kind of honing in on some of the data which is just it has been extraordinary uh, you know coming out of the, of the COVID crisis. Uh, you know, single unit housing starts up 12% year over year. Existing home sales up 10% year over year. New home sales, which is just an incredible number, I had to recheck it. You know, getting ready for this call, up 43% year over year. That's the fastest pace since 2006. Uh, pending home sales up twenty one percent so that that hit a new record on a year over year basis yesterday so uh it's it's truly remarkable uh what we 're seeing on the housing front but also just what it 's done to confidence just home builder confidence it 's at the highest record uh highest on record rather at eighty three currently so you know the the pace or continued pace of this uh, housing surge, if you will, continues. So, you know that you know home builders have clearly been a beneficiary of that on the equity side. And uh, but we, we, as fixed income investors, really been looking at areas uh, and continue to focus on areas of non-agency uh, mortgage-backed securities. So, securities not backed by um, you know the GSEs or or Uncle Sam, if you will, from a principal protection perspective. So, taking credit risk, uh, what we view as very high quality credit risk in, in the non-agency RMBS subsectors where. You you can get very high loss-adjusted yields on a relative basis, but also have a whole host of uh, uh, credit protection, in our opinion, just due to the, the momentum that we're seeing in, in home prices, but also in, in prepayment activity due to low mortgage rates.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it. Sam, Sam Dunlap, excuse me, Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategies down at Angel Oak Capital Advisors in the ATL. And uh, good to catch up with him, and especially you know the housing market. I feel like Carol, yeah, it, it's playing a different role in this crisis, right? It well, was at the core well, of the last crisis, and now it's a it's a funny little indicator in some ways of where we are. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.